0: to the Global Recon podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft
1: LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Globalrecon.net, fieldcraftsurvival.com. I'm your host John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover of Fieldcraft, who is the show's co-host. And today we have an interesting episode because we have we conducted two separate interviews. I interviewed a gentleman named Nick Betts, who is an eight-year Army veteran uh, with a f- couple of combat deployments, and and we spoke about one of his deployments, and we got into some interesting things with Nick. And then Mike went on to interview Kicks Eye CEO Will Harbin, and they discussed business and the mindset that you need to have in order to be successful at at any venture, which is is very interesting. So, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Mike and, um, Mike's going to talk to you guys about our upcoming webinar.
0: Hey guys, it's Mike from Philcraft. Good to be back on the show. Thanks for all the support again. Um, we've been getting a lot of, uh, feedback from the first time that we put out a couple of weeks ago that we were going to host a webinar and, uh, me and John have been going through, uh, jumping through a lot of hoops, trying to get everything set up for hosting and, and for training we have a lot of venues that we want to start putting out there as far as the training evolutions that we want to put on webinars um and the first one that we're introducing is what's called the uh, webinar ops course this the webinar ops course is a course that's based off my ops course out of northern california that talks about survival psychology you know really why people live and die and review a specific survival case study that that was done by John Leach, a survival psychologist. Uh, in addition to discussing training methodologies, fulfilling that kind of that gap of information uh, in space, and leave you really with the impression and some tangible takeaways to establish some survival techniques and procedures that will only increase your ability to survive and really react to a, a natural man made catastrophe. Um, this block of instruction is going to last about two to two and a half hours, depending on how it flows on the uh, actual live webinar and about 30 minutes of opportunity for Q&A and everything from survival and preparedness um, really to, to anything that people want to, to ask. You know, we, we, webinar space, uh, webinar formats are new to, to me and John with Global Recon, but we think it's a better outlet because we could reach more people um, at one time. And it's just a a, a better form for, for discussion. Uh so you can you can catch that 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 webinar is is set up right now for Saturday, the ninth of April, the ninth of this month. Um and it's gonna run from what are the hard times that we set, uh John?
1: Uh four P.m. uh Eastern Standard Time.
0: Yeah, so four PM Eastern Standard Time. Um and that's gonna go uh, for about three hours, but here's the deal: if if we haven't filled the minimum course requirement, um, then we're going to push that to the right and run at the same time next Saturday, or keep continuing push it to the right until we fill it. So I've asked for people who 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 signed up for it um, just to to stay patient and just um, know that we're trying to fill these courses, and once we get it filled, we'll run it. And If it gets to the point where we're not filling the courses. Which we don't think is going to happen, but if it, it gets to the point where we're not phoning it, uh, then obviously we'll, we'll offer 100% uh, refund on all, all the uh, uh, people who've opted in. We appreciate the response and the feedback thus far, and I hope that uh, it, it continues to be something that's uh, more beneficial to the, uh, to the customer, to you guys in the future.
1: Yeah, so for anyone who wants to opt in, you can go to Mike's website at fieldcraftsurvival dot com and go to the store tab, and then in the store he has a, a training section. You click on that, and if you scroll down, you'll you'll find the webinar where you can uh, make your purchase and opt in, and we'll lock you in for the course. Okay, so with that being said, now uh, we're gonna get into the interview that I had with Nick Betts from Crypto Strategic. Hey, what's up, guys? I am on with Nick Betts, and Nick has uh, written an article for my website prior, and I've shared some of his posts on social media. So Nick uh, spent eight years in the Army. He finished out his enlistment as a reconnaissance sniper with the 4th Infantry Division at Fort Carson. Uh, After getting out, Nick went to work in executive protection in California for two years before deciding to go back to Iraq as a contractor. So, Nick, it's great to finally have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So, Nick, I, I want to start off by getting into your background a little bit. And, um, you know, I would like for you to share with the listeners what what made you decide to join the Army, what age did you join the Army, and how did that begin for you?
2: You know, it, so I went in when I was 18, uh graduated high school and, you know, kind of wanted to show my parents what was what and I could do it on my own. And so right away I moved out after I graduated high school and uh, living on my own for a few months. And, you know, times got tough and I just I wasn't making enough money to uh, live on my own. And and, uh, and so I ended up reaching out to a recruiter and, and ended up talking to them, you know, about the various positions in the Army that, um, you know, that they were offering. And so this is in 2005, uh, right during the heat of the war. And originally I wanted to go in as a combat photographer just because photojournalism and uh, photography was my passion. But uh, everything got finished through with all my paperwork and I tested and I went up to Meps and Phoenix to go enlist. And they told me that I couldn't be a combat, combat photographer and that my only two options were to be infantry or to be a cook. So I took the, uh, the obvious route there and went ahead and enlisted in the infantry and ended up uh, getting stationed in Germany for the first part of my career and it was I it wasn't necessarily out of um, you know patriotism or anything like that I just kind of saw it as as a good avenue to get some good life experiences and and to kind of make something of myself
1: And, and it was definitely the best decision that I ever made nice so you spent eight years total in the army and then you have a few combat diplomas as well what year was your first deployment?
2: So when I enlisted, they actually offered me a bonus to go to one of the uh, soon to deploy units, and uh, so they offered me a, a fat sum to to go to a unit that was, you know, they were they were getting ready to kick out and, and go right away, and, and so I volunteered for that. So I deployed to Ramadi, Iraq, in early 2006. Is when I ended up. Uh, finally getting, getting
1: over to Iraq. Well, wow, So actually in Ramadi in 06, that was probably one of the, the worst areas of Iraq and probably for the, for the the duration of the war, that was probably one of the worst times to actually be there in terms of the, the, the level of fighting and violence that was going on.
2: Hands down, dude.
1: Hands down. Um, it was a huge
2: eye opener. I mean, coming from you know, I was a civilian not even a year before that. And then next thing I know, I'm in the infantry. And not only that, we were directly attached to the SEAL teams that were working in Ramadi. And so we were going out and just, you know, we, we couldn't step foot in the city during the day at all uh, because we'd end up getting into contact, we'd get the firefights. And we ended up losing a few guys that tour. And the SEAL teams, you know, those guys, they ended up uh, getting in some pretty wicked firefights too. So there was a lot of mutual support between the two of us. Because we rolled around in Bradley fighting vehicles, which is kind of like a uh, like a smaller tank, and so they utilized our mechanized uh, guys just like we were utilizing, you know, them and their skill sets, and and they worked in really small teams. So it was it was definitely a rough tour, uh, but it kind of set the precedence for for the rest of my career.
1: So w- would that have been SEAL Team Three that was operating in Ramadi at that time?
2: Yeah, actually. So when we first got there, SEAL Team 3 uh, was there operating. And then because we did a 15-month tour, because the Army, that's just kind of the way they rolled back then. And so we were there for so long that when we first got there, it was Team 3, and then they rotated out with Team 5. And then as we were getting ready to kick back home, uh, Team 3 came back, and, and they were kind of stunned that we were still there. And just like, holy crap, guys, you're still here? And uh so it was, it was a long one for us, but that was, you know, between T and team three and five working together. Uh, that was, you know, when Chris was there, Chris Kyle and, uh, Marcus Luttrell, and, and those guys were operating that same AO with us.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And if, if anyone's read the book, American sniper, uh, Chris Kyle detailed some of, uh, what the operations were like in Ramadi during that time frame, And it, it seemed pretty crazy. So Nick, Uh, Can I ask you in the last few episodes, we've been the guests who've come on, have given us like, you know, maybe a a couple of minutes, five to seven minutes of a war story. Can you give us a war story from that time frame or or, or any any of your deployments?
2: Yeah. So Ramadi definitely has the the majority of all the all the war stories that I got. Um, So during that tour, we ended up losing Paul Ballant, who was in my unit. Uh, from an enemy sniper and so between us and, and the SEAL teams we've been trying to find that person uh, that sniper because they they were taking out quite a few guys in that in that area and so we were trying to find them for the longest time and so what my unit ended up doing was establishing what we called SKTs or small kill teams and so we would take our army snipers that we had with us that were working in pairs and they would throw about five or six guys in with them with Uh, two four nines, like saw um, machine guns, heavy weapons and stuff like that. And we would set up with the snipers and we'd sit in overnight for one day, two days or three days at a time. And so we set up in the soccer stadium or right on the opposite side of the soccer stadium, because we were getting Intel that that's where the sniper was starting to take their pop shots from. Um, So we sat in all night, the snipers didn't see anything. We were staying up all night and, you know, I was kind of babysitting the Iraqis that we had tied up in the corner and so the sun started to break in the morning and we were all getting ready to kick out so that we could get out of there because being out in Ramadi during the daytime at that time was just way too dangerous, especially for a smaller element. So we kicked out and we threw smoke outside on either corner of the street and it was kind of just like a baton-like death march. Like we just had to run all the way from the one building to uh, our little outpost uh, where we had like T-walls and stuff like that. So it was a pretty little safe area. It was probably about 200, 250 yards from where we were to that little safe house. And the Iraqi army was positioned up to kind of help cover us as we were running down this alleyway. And so I was the last guy in the stack. And I just remember hauling butt. And I was running by this Iraqi commander who was kind of standing there, um, you know, looking proud and standing tall and wasn't taking cover or anything like that. And I just remember when I was running by him, I'm like, man, this guy's insane. Like, what are you doing? And so I started hauling ass out of there, and uh, sure, you know, we started getting shot at, and we're like, "Oh crap!" So I'm looking for the nearest cover, and as soon as I run by this Iraqi commander, dude, the guy eats one to the chest uh, from what I assume was a sniper, just because there was only one round that passed by me, and I heard the crack, and and this guy just, you know, like I said, took it right to the chest and fell down on the ground. Wow! But we were under such heavy contact at the time, and we were all just beating feet, dude, just kicking out of there, and. Uh, just ran with my guys and took off and and that Iraqi commander ended up he ended up not making it, but uh it was that was that was pretty hairy man I mean all the machine guns everywhere that we had uh, fighting positions we were just hosing, and we had no idea where it was coming from we were just trying to get the hell out of dodge
1: right, and I know that 's one of the uh like the difficult aspects of dealing with enemy snipers, especially if you don 't know where they 're shooting from you know
2: yeah and and this guy was good too. um we weren't even a hundred percent convinced that he was actually Iraqi. We were thinking that he was probably Chechnyan or or somewhere somewhere like that just because of his skill set um and and the way that he was shooting guys he was shooting in between the side plates and the front plates on our body armor, which is you know the the weakness that we have and uh y- you know he was just getting them right right where it hurt so you know it was it was scary, man. It was, you never knew whether to pop your head up actually when we first got into Ramadi, we were ripping out with the one hundred and first airborne division, and this guy, his last rotation there man he was going home the very next day this one hundred and first guy uh they were kind of showing us around the town and one of the soldiers poked their head up over a wall on top of the building, and uh he ended up getting killed by that same sniper
1: oh wow and and did you guys eventually find out uh, find the sniper or we did, actually. Um,
2: it was during a, a larger operation that they'd ended up just throwing a bunch of explosives and 25-millimeter uh, rounds and stuff like that in this building. And, uh, you know, he was, he was done after that. We found the rifle. We found the munitions in and, and, and the body. And we didn't have any issues after that. So I can only assume that that, that was the right guy.
1: Right, right. So, so, Nick, how many deployments do you have? Uh, I got three. And they were all, all three were to
2: Iraq? No, I had one to, one to Iraq, uh, like I said, 2006. And then I had another one there in 2008. Uh, and I was up north, kind of working with the Kurds and the Iraqis. And then my last rotation was to Afghanistan up in the Kunar province.
1: Okay. Um, so at, at what point did you become a sniper? When did you go to sniper school?
2: uh that was as soon as i PCS to Fort Carson so i got to Fort Carson in 2009 late 2009 and i got there and it was amazing because when i, I was coming from germany and so the army kind of has two different budgets they have the the army user or united states army europe budget and then they have the the budget for the stateside guys and so when i was in germany they they didn't send guys to schools you know there was hardly any opportunity like that, as far as career progression, and as soon as I got the Carson, you know, it was it was balls with walls, or whatever I wanted. So I ended up going to sniper school. I went to the Army's Recon School or ARSlick, um, and then ended up knocking out a few other kind of like smaller schools like that that helped get me trained up for the the Recon section.
1: Oh, so when you do when you're in the, the uh, a Recon element uh, specifically for the. Uh the division that you were in, the infantry division you were in, it isn't just sniper school. There's other schools that kind of uh, train you up for that job.
2: Yeah, so the Marine Corps has scout sniper school where they kind of incorporate a lot of the field craft, a lot of the intelligence gathering, uh, photography, and and all those various facets uh, to kind of bring into th- the, the whole package, I guess you would say. And the Army doesn't necessarily work like that. So we have two different schools. Obviously, we have sniper school, which – there's a whole lot of shooting and and it's the the finer points of it. It's learning how to dial scope, call for wind, and stuff like that. But also the Ranger Training Brigade has a school dedicated purely to reconnaissance. And so that's called the Reconnaissance and Surveillance Leaders Course. And that is where they teach you all about the photography, all about the intelligence gathering, uh tracking, counter-tracking. And, and, you know, kind of the finer points of recon. So once you get those two belts or once you get those two schools on your belt, that's where you're, you're kind of rounding out the entire package.
1: Okay. So, so after you completed all of your sniper reconnaissance training, your, after that, your next deployment was in the, as you were operating in the role of a sniper, uh, reconnaissance guy.
2: Yeah, and actually, truth be told, um, I ended up getting kicked out of the sniper section or, or the, the recon platoon uh, for reasons I don't necessarily want to go into. But me, me and the platoon sergeant had it out for each other, and so he ended up booting me. And uh, I, was, I was pretty salty, man, because I, I worked with those guys for years and trained with those guys, and they were the most incredible, the most skilled uh, you know, guys that I had ever worked with. And so when I lost that and I went to a regular company, I was, I was furious, man. But luckily, when I went to that new company, my first sergeant there, he knew where I would came from. He knew all the schools that I had. He knew all the training. And so as soon as I got to Afghanistan, he ended up getting me a sniper rifle and kind of tasking me out to be in charge or the, the sniper with the company. And so he would kind of ask me about sniper placement. Um, he would send me out with not only just my platoon, but the other platoons and stuff like that to help provide overwatch and, and sniper assets.
1: Oh, nice. So I know, I guess like in, in, the uh, in the history of the U S military, typically I think before, uh, Vietnam and, and including Vietnam, anytime that there was a war, I guess there'll be like a quick scramble to create like a long range marksman unit. And then I believe, uh, Carlos Hathcock, the uh, the uh, legendary Marine Scout Sniper, he played a, a large role in in having a sniper program established and maintaining snipers even in peacetime. And then I know afterwards there were there were some issues with commanders not fully understanding how to deploy snipers and and how to use them for the the maximum uh, benefit of their skill set.
2: Yeah, that's always been a huge issue, and that's that's something that I really paid a lot of attention to. So whenever we were working company operations, or even when we were training up, I would sit in on the meetings with the various company commanders talking about their missions and the mission planning, and I would I would run it down for them. And be like, "Listen, this is what my guys are capable of. This is what we can do for you. These are these are the assets that I can provide you, and this is this is how we can help uh, you know make this mission successful for you." And I I had a it was very political almost to kind of jump in there and not necessarily tell the company commander like, hey, this is what I can do and, and place me somewhere. It was more or less kind of putting myself out there and, and having letting him want to help us and vice versa. And so that that's always been a big issue because I think that the the reason for that is company commanders get very nervous about spending about sending out a small unit like the sniper teams. Um, out outside the wire or outside in harm's way because they have very little control over and There's little contact. There's not a whole lot of assets. And the last thing that any company commander wants under his belt is a killed sniper section, whether we get compromised or, or whatever it may be. So that I feel like that's where the hesitancy comes from, from using snipers.
1: Yeah, and would you say that, uh, from what I've read, I've read of instances where the guys calling the shots, they weren't even fully aware of the capability of a sniper team or snipers. And, and that also affected how they were deployed Uh, or at least maybe early on in, in the, uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan.
2: Yeah. I can't speak for everybody. I know in, in 2006 when I was in Ramadi, um, our company commander at the time had a huge amount of faith and trust in our sniper team. We only had two of them with us or one sniper team of, of two guys And they were stand-up dudes. I mean, those guys, they killed more people in smallpox, that rotation, just because it was such a target-rich environment. And in order to kind of alleviate his fears and the possibility of compromise is when he built those SKTs. So we had the two snipers that would go up on the roof, and they would do their duties, and they would provide overwatch and and, uh, take out guys as needed. Meanwhile, downstairs, there were about five or six of us with, Uh, 249s, grenade launchers, and we would set up claymores on the doors and stuff like that just to make sure that we weren't going to get compromised. And so when we were operating that kind of package, the company commander was really, he was really pumped and uh, it it proved really useful, that rotation. The last rotation in Afghanistan, obviously I can't speak for the actual sniper section, but I know that my company commander, my first sergeant, Uh, use me to the best of their abilities. So it it worked out. It's all about building rapport and having a good relationship with your, with your, uh, you know, company commander and your first sergeant.
1: Right. Okay. So Nick, now, can we talk a little bit about your company? Yeah. So,
2: um, I started crypto strategic in October and it kind of came once I got out of the military, I started going to SHOT Show every year. And SHOT Show is a huge deal. And I was, I was networking with guys and I was meeting all kinds of fantastic people in the industry. And it was at SHOT Show when I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Patrick Ma. And Patrick Ma ended up – he founded a, a clothing company in San Francisco called TripLot Design. And so he ran Triple Out Design for years and years and years. And, and it's a fantastic like high-end technical outdoor gear and apparel company. Kind of think Arc'teryx but on a smaller level. And so Patrick was starting a new venture called Prometheus Design Works. And he was doing a lot of the similar stuff. A lot of clothing, manufacturing, uh, textiles, hard goods, knives, and stuff like that. And so Patrick was always, he was always a huge idol of mine because I loved wearing his clothes. And I was super passionate about his designs. And so he asked me to come on board and, and work with him. And so I worked with Patrick for a little while. And I kind of feel like he was grooming me from, from the very beginning to end up running my own ship. And so I did. And uh, in October, you know, I was kind of bored in my room. And, and I was like, you know, I have all these designs. I have all these ideas of stuff that I want to do. But I don't have a company. And so I was kind of thinking about maybe selling these designs to some of the other people that I knew. I was like, nah, man, just start your own thing. So that's kind of how I started crypto. And I really wanted to focus on designing clothes for guys that didn't necessarily want to advertise what they do. I was really straying away from the, the three percenter, the LeVay and the the you know ARs and bullets and all these, you know, super motivational like um sayings on their shirts. I kind of wanted to go more cryptic. I wanted to go with a little more class and finesse with with my clothing. Uh, I, I kind of call it clothes for the gray man uh, guys that don't advertise their capabilities. And so I've been knee deep working on clothes and working on designs, uh, working on this, this new denim that I'm coming out with. And then also in the company, I'm designing gear specifically tar- tailored for precision rifle shooters. So there's a lot of deficiencies in the market. When I was a sniper, I was like, man, I really wish I had this for man, You know, I really wish this was made better. And, uh, And so now I kind of have that capability to design this stuff and get it out to snipers. And that's exactly what I've been doing.
1: Nice. So uh, you you wrote an article and I posted it up on my website. It was a pretty good article. It got really great feedback. And what I'll do is in the podcast notes, I'll set up a link for that article and I'll also set up uh, links to your social media handles and your website. So Nick, Aside from the company, you've also done ex, uh, executive protection work, and you're, and you're currently uh, overseas right now as we speak, right?
2: Yeah. When I first got out of the Army, I was I was working for an executive protection company uh, based in Los Angeles called Gavin and Becker. So I worked for them for uh, two years, I believe, and I was doing... I had a full-time client that I was working for and I'd also do some, some travel details and and I'd work up in LA a little bit and it was, it was an awesome job, man. I absolutely loved it, but it's kind of came time. I was like, you know what? Um, I want to do something different. I want to, uh, you know, I was was just kind of getting burned out on it. It was, it was, it was a lot of work and it. It just kind of, it wasn't really working out for me anymore. So I ended up leaving them and now I contract overseas
1: Okay, Nick, it was great having you on, and um, I appreciate you taking out the time to, to come on and talk with me. Can you drop your website handle, your social media handles for anyone who would like to reach out to you or to check out some of your work? Yeah,
2: so my website is cryptostrategic.com, and that's K-R-U-P-T-O. Uh, I ended up coming up with that. It's, crypto is Greek, and it means to hide, conceal, and escape notice, and I kind of felt like it really falls in line with uh, you know, what I want to do with the company as well as my background. So, so, so people don't spell it wrong because a lot of people are spelling it K-R-Y-P-T-O. But I, I went way back uh, with, with the whole Greek, the original spelling of it. And then on social media, I got uh, the same Facebook as CryptoStrategic. And then for my Instagram handle, it's Crypto underscore Strategic.
1: Nice. So Nick, uh, ho- hopefully we can get you on in uh future episodes and we can, uh, discuss a bunch of different topics. And, uh, so just once again, I want to thank you for coming on and I appreciate it talking with you.
0: Absolutely, dude. It was, it was fantastic. So in- interesting perspective and good stories, man, from that guy. Um, you know, he being a sniper in the, in the big army is a, an important job for, for any element because, uh, You know, they are the eyes and the ears for for Ford moving elements. And uh, uh, kudos to him for all of his service and everything he's done and continues to do uh, abroad. Um, Transitioning from from his interview uh, with John, we're going to go into uh, my interview with uh, Will Harbin, the CEO of Kixi, which is a a global leader in uh, really the gaming industry, uh, especially the mobile gaming industry. So Will, I met Will at one of the ops courses that I ran, uh, where he was a student of mine, and noticed uh, he, he he was running and gunning a little bit harder than everybody else, and and just stood out to me. And come to find out, he's the CEO of a video game company, which was even more um, perplexing to me when I was trying to figure out what kind of guy he was. But he's just a you know a country boy who grew up in Georgia and then uh, transitioned out here to the West Coast, and then. Seven years ago, took a took a uh, company that was in a world of hurt and, and really made them to what they are now, which is a, a pretty um, successful and leader of uh, uh, the mobile gaming industry. So we'll go straight in that interview right now. Hey guys, it's Mike from Philcraft. Hey, I'm on the show today with Will Harbin. He's the CEO of uh, he's the chairman and CEO of Kicksai. Uh, Kicksai is a leading development company and. He's a publisher of online games and a pioneer, really, in the in the free-to-play gaming. Uh, over the last six years, Harbin has had has led KickSide to become one of the top gaming companies in North America. Um, in addition to that, he's found numerous companies. He's also an avid shooter, hunter and sportsman, is, and is really uh, the, the way I ran into him. Uh, Will went to one of my ops courses that teaches survival mindset psychology, and uh, we kind of do a culmination at the end of the day. And none but else to me, I didn't, I didn't even know because uh, Will was running and gunning with the best of them that uh, he actually was a CEO in San Francisco of, of this gaming company. Um, so uh, having Will on today is a is a benefit for the listeners because you know we get a perspective from someone who's been successful in business and and you know business leadership and development for veterans, first responders, or for people making kind of that transition, uh, or for really anybody trying to get into business. It's important to get these perspectives from uh, CEOs, especially successful CEOs in their industry. So, uh, will you on the line? Yes. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, no issues, man. Thanks for being on. I know you're a busy guy and, uh, I know you got a lot going on, especially with, uh, up and coming, uh, projects. A lot uh, of games to play. Yeah. A lot of games to play. Right. I, 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 uh, it's interesting to me cause you know, I don't know this stuff and we haven't really talked about it outside of our small conversations that we've had, um, but for the listeners who don't know, Will's company actually came out here and did, we did a leadership and team building seminar that lasted 48 hours. And on our social media handles at, at Soft Survivor on Instagram, there's a couple clips of Will's guys doing some um, pretty exciting things, but overall learning about leadership, uh, learning how to be a good subordinate, and then learning different techniques from our perspective, from uh, Philcraft's perspective. Um, let, let's start off, Will. Let's let's start off with uh, telling us how you got into the gaming industry and uh, uh, what what games do you currently develop now. Yeah.
3: So um, yeah, you know, I started out as a gamer when I was a kid, um, like most people, playing Nintendo and, and computer games and things like that, and moving on to Xbox and, and stuff. And uh, I didn't really get into gaming as a job up until about now, six and a half, seven years ago after I was fortunate to have some pretty pretty good financial success and business success and other things, I was kind of in the middle of a bit of a life change, had gotten a divorce and kind of reshaping my life and just basically just gonna kind of focus on stuff that makes me happy. And I didn't want to go and do just another internet startup or some kind of boring enterprise sales company. Uh, too old to do any kind of new exciting job, like join the military or anything like that. Um, so I uh, thought next best thing was to to start a, a video game company. So I started kind of searching around for people to people to start this company with. wasn't having a whole lot of luck and I found um, found a small outfit in London. Uh, it was just these two guys making these little flash games on browser. They made this really popular game called Desktop Tower Defense which basically everybody played at around 2007 and actually won MTV, MTV's Video Game of the Year, beating out Halo and a bunch of other stuff. And it's just, frankly, kind of this crappy little flash game that just <laughs> won a lot, a lot of hearts and minds. And um, But they were very bad at business, and they weren't thinking really big. I knew that they had something um, when it came to just kind of the raw mechanics of designing Games and I had an idea of doing kind of these large, massive scale war games that were super accessible to people. So at the time, on browser and Facebook, and then eventually wanted to do it in mobile. So their company was essentially defunct. Um, so we uh, joined forces and restarted the business and started KickSci from there. Back in um, I guess it was two thousand, late two thousand nine. So coming up on coming up on seven years. And um, so, our first big game was, was something called Backyard Monsters. Um, you know, we were kind of insecure about the kind of games that we were, or the kind of games that we could make then. We didn't want to go kind of full balls to the walls war game at the time. But Backyard Monsters, you know, it was kind of a cute theme, but it was essentially a straight up hardcore PvP battle game between people. Um, and that design kind of served as the framework um for a lot of our future war games that went more towards modern warfare <clears throat> and also inspired, you know, many hundreds, if not thousands, of clones. So Clash of Clans, which I'm sure pretty much everyone has heard of, is is almost a pixel for pixel ripoff of of uh of backyard monsters. Um so we're uh, we're kind of responsible for that core MMORTS RTS framework is what they call it. So, massive multiplayer online real-time strategy game is what we're known for. And then from there, uh, we made a game called Battle Pirates and War Commander. Um, both of those have been pretty successful. Uh, both are about five plus years old. Still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people a day are playing it. And we're working on some new stuff for for the mobile generation.
0: Now, now you now, you know, we talked about this before, but. What, what's the difference? Because ga- the gaming industry has obviously changed from the time that, you know, me and you were playing Nintendo and, and even evolving into Xbox and into and to video game consoles. And, and I know you have, your video games are on a global scale, right? You guys are building a culture that, where people can play across seas. And, and this isn't a new concept, but, but how, does that, how does that really work in the gaming industry?
3: So, I mean, these days with everyone being connected, I mean, the internet is a global thing, with the exception of really China because of the Chinese firewall restricting what goes in and out of that country. But basically, everywhere outside of China and North Korea and a handful of other countries restricted by um, that country's laws, uh, it's you know, there's no reason why you know someone sitting in Taiwan. Um, or Japan or wherever can't you know, go to your website or go to the app store or the Google Play store and then download whatever you're working on. It's, you know, that's what I like about mobile and browser and PC gaming relative to console gaming. Console gaming is a lot more restrictive in terms of distribution. You have to play ball with Microsoft or Sony. You've, you've got to work with different publishers. You're effectively delivering a physical product. Um, and that's a bit antiquated. So what we do is we do very efficient publishing of, you know, electronic distributed distributed um, uh, games. Um, so either streamed via PC or browser or you download it from kind of the very broadly distributed mobile app stores. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of our games, all of our games are effectively big MMOs, so big, massive multiplayer online games. We have... Um, You know, people in Russia playing people in China who have, you know, um, who have VPNs that can thwart the Chinese firewall. Uh, People in Russia playing with people in Germany, playing with people in London, playing people in Italy. And you see kind of some really interesting emerging gameplay. So we have a mobile game right now called Vega Conflict, which is essentially a, a space strategy game where you have like a fleet of ships and you can build a space station and you're with like different clans and alliances and different star sectors and things like that. And it's, it's interesting, the kind of international emerging gameplay that happens, you see like the Russian players gang up on the Chinese players and (laughs) the Australian players, you know, gang up on everybody. Um, it's, it's really funny to see there is a lot of kind of cultural
0: and, um, (laughs) Uh, kind of country international pride going on in some of these things. That's pretty cool. I just, in fact, I, I have that on my phone now. I just downloaded uh, uh, after you guys did a seminar. I've been playing that. It's pretty awesome. Um, I, you know, what I noticed is so all so these things happen real time, and and I remember you know like trying to play uh like Strike Force or all the the those old games that were like first person shooter kind of games, and you're trying to play them online. What I mean, how how are people? people able to play these video games in real time with without the lull or delay? I mean, I, I was, I've always wondered about that.
3: Um, it's a lot of work and it's taken a lot of time. I mean, I just remember starting my first company in, say, 1998, 1999, our first real company. Um, we spent an enormous amount of money on servers and just the connection to our co-location server farms and things like that um, that are basically kind of commoditized and cheap these days. So it's just the basic advancement of the internet hardware and communication devices and signals. I mean, if you remember, it, it wasn't, it was barely 20 years ago when people were still using 2,400 dial up BOD modems and relying on kind of pretty crappy copper wired um you know, phone lines and super slow hardware to communicate, you know, bits and bytes back and forth from servers, Um, you know, super inefficient. Now these days um, you've got uh, some countries that are completely wired with really advanced fiber optic communication signals, like, like South Korea It's crazy. I mean, every, every home there, every, piece of infrastructure is wired with very, very high bandwidth fiber optic um, uh, uh, communication channels. So, you know, as the rest of the world uh, begins to reduce or increase kind of their technical infrastructure, thereby reducing, you know, what, so what you're talking about is latency, that lag. Mm-hmm. So latency is the basic measurement of, of a byte going back and forth um, from one point to the other. So as you, you know, you'll never get to zero latency with current technology. I'm sure we'll f- figure out some invention in the future where things are instantaneous. I don't know, we'll like beam up bytes or something and through wormholes or something, but we're not quite there yet. So, um, basically it's, you know, countries have really invested a lot in, uh, their basic internet infrastructure. Companies have done the same. Um, you still have some pockets. It's still kind of a pain in the ass going back and forth between Australia because they have kind of a crappy, wiring system from their island to everybody everywhere else but for the most part it's just it's just been all of these internet companies and governments investing you know I'd say billions of dollars into technical infrastructure but that's on kind of the hardware underlying infrastructure side um, you know from a software side you've got to have really elegant uh, server-side code that's written by very talented engineers to have it as efficient as possible um, you know you can't just Pipe any amount of data over over the wire and expect it to come back latency free. You know, like a case like Vega Conflict, I mean that's, that was a very challenging undertaking. You know, it's taken us a total of three years or so to make that game and make the infrastructure so that you can fight people from Russia in real time. And you know, when their ships are moving around the sector, you can see them and back and forth. Um, you have to be very kind of strategic in thinking about what and when you send, you know, to the server and to the client,
0: um, that's where kind of a lot of the skill and the discipline comes in on the engineering. Well, wow. So you're, so you're recruiting from obviously a, a, a talented pool of individuals. I would imagine just, uh, just gamers in general, you're, I mean, you've got uh, the tier one uh, engineers of, of the industry working for you, for you guys, right?
3: I mean, there's a, there's a high degree of very smart people and it's really hard to, you know they they all don't have kind of one profile, I mean, sure, we've got you know the guys from MIT and Stanford, but we also have high school dropouts who were just savants and geniuses and just too smart for school, or they were so smart they weren't doing well in school and kind of matured at a later date um, but yeah, they're uh, super super smart you know I'd say we're pretty pretty high on the autism scale
0: here, yeah that's awesome man all right so for listeners who don't know um we, you know we do. Phil Craft does leadership development and uh, team building seminars, and I've done those for for police officers, for f- police departments, for businesses in Texas and Colorado. Um, Will's company is the first uh, video game company that I've I've, I've uh, worked with, but you know, Will when he showed up to the ops course isn't like. You know, I remember he showed up. He had Solomon's on. He had North Face jacket. He he had a compass on his uh, Solomon uh, shoes. He brought his own guns and he was running and gunning. And I'm like, this this guy's a little bit different. And to to find out, Will, that you actually were a CEO of a a video gaming company was surprising to me. And you know, obviously because there's stereotypes there, and I totally stereotyped you. Um, But (laughs) but when I when I found out that you were, and then um, seeing that you actually had good gun handling skills and we, we got to talking, you said you had, um, trained with other, other guys. And in fact, you do that as a hobby on the side. Now, where does that come from? I mean, I I know you're an avid shooter, you're a hunter, you're a sportsman. How did you get into that? Did you grow up doing that? And then you, you slipped into it, into that industry, or is that something that you just picked up from being in the industry just to, you know, take you, take you away from that?
3: Yeah. So kind of a roundabout way. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Georgia called Rome. Um, and, uh, you know, hunting and fishing were, were super popular, um, hobbies and pastimes. Uh, my family, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family that, that had a lot of land. Um, and that, and just kind of the heritage of hunting and being a sportsman was kind of passed down for generations. Um, you know, everybody in my family, family was kind of an avid duck, quail, dub, turkey hunter. Um, and so, you know, I got my first shotgun when I was probably seven years old, which is probably frowned upon in today's culture. Um, but uh, back in Georgia, we got our guns at seven. Uh, so, you know, I, it started just kind of along that path. I really, I don't think I bought my first handgun or, fought, or first AR up until maybe just a few years ago. Uh, But for the most part, I was really just into hunting and and kind of light on kind of the gun thing. It really wasn't until I moved out to San Francisco about a decade ago um, when, um, I don't know, I started to get a little bit more politically involved. And sure, I'd played a lot of video games and things like that and and kind of had – Uh, a lot of interest in military history and military strategy. And I've always tried to kind of apply elements of strategy to day to day life, especially business and things like that. But for the most part, um, I wasn't into any of the, you know, quote unquote, tactical stuff or whatever, uh, until I moved to San Francisco. And um, I started taking a lot more of an interest in kind of home defense when a lot of our neighbors are being victimized as from home invasions and things like that, um, you know, a lot of crime. I'd walk out and my car would be on jacks and people would steal the, the wheels and stuff. And, or, you know, my, my neighbor, she was broken into and they roughed her up and killed the dog and stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty nasty stuff. And, you know, I never saw any of this in Georgia at all. And I lived in Atlanta for a while and um, certainly that place was not without its criminals and uh, the difference, you know, I think in San Francisco is that the criminals here know that nobody is armed. Um, you know, most people in San Francisco are kind of pacifists, and they're very anti Second Amendment. They're anti guns. They believe all the BS coming from politicians. And so, I decided to start, ex- you know, exercising my Second Amendment rights. So I went out and, and bought some firearms for for home protection. At this point, I was really only skilled with a shotgun and and um, and you know basic. 30 alt six or 308 for, for deer boar hunting. Um, but, uh, had never had any real professional non hunting training. So, um, so yeah, so basically started to get into it from a personal defense home defense standpoint. And, um, you know, hopefully it won't come in handy anytime soon, but since I've been doing CEI, the C, since I've been doing the CEO thing for kicks, I, uh, have had my share of death threats. Um, from some crazies since we kind of, for a while had a very highly visible, high profile kind of PR thing going and that attracted some of the wrong kind of attention. So I have, you know, armed security here and we run some, you know, active shooter drills and things like that. Um, so it was really kind of out of need and in, but, but during that time I also kind of discovered as a, as a great hobby it's kind of the living embodiment of a video game. I mean, you know, what other sports can you kind of combine, um, fine motor skills and hand-eye coordination with some level of physical exertion and, you know, some level of adrenaline. I mean, obviously shooting at paper targets only goes so far. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, they're handy skills to have. And I believe in our second, the second amendment rights and exercising them and fund as, as many um, kind of campaigns and lawsuits that I can um, to help defend uh, the Bill of Rights and our Constitution and, you know, take it very seriously.
0: Yeah, it's, that's awesome to hear because – and that's not – you know, that's not backing anybody in the corner, but you're right. I mean, they're, 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 especially in San Francisco, there's definitely a culture of uh, anti-gun um, establishments that that, you know, until they are the victim of a crime – Really don't come out of the uh, the the uh, the shadows um, per se to, to even look at that. So the fact that you identified that it's that's pretty cool. That you know people don't aren't you know they're not they're not even thinking about those kind of things until they become a victim, and then all of a sudden it's it's very crystal clear to why you need to defend yourself and why you need to be kind of more tied into to home defense and and the Second Amendment. Um, yeah. It
3: depends on what you're exposed to. I mean, I think fortunate for me, I wasn't directly exposed to anything. Um, and it was really kind of people around me and realizing, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be next. Yeah. Someone
0: through my door, they're going to die. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, so, you know, that, th- that, mindset for, for the convention and for the, the, for most of society is unconventional. And then when I, when I, when I look at you and I think about your company and and your approach, like even approaching me and talking about leadership and and we we talked about back and forth about the team team building seminar, um, it seemed unconventional to me because that mindset is not typical of uh, CEOs in your industry. I wouldn't think it's as far as I know. So um,
3: yeah, yeah, maybe you know, certainly not the broader tech industry here, um, but you know maybe a little bit. I think people in the the gaming industry would kind of surprise you.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as a as a leader of of a gaming company, I mean, when you looked at doing training with us, and you, or you look at doing training that's outside of like the lecture or the typical seminar. I mean, one of your guys came to me, uh, one of your big executives came to me, and, and talked to me about how. Um, He was, you know, he had been to so many seminars that were the same thing on podiums, and and people, you know, basically lecturing them on how to become better leaders. But why why come and do something where like it's to me completely opposite of that kind of path and 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 trying to get uh, leadership and development?
3: Um, Yeah, I believe in kind of helping create you know, better, more well-rounded leaders, um, you know, coming into your course, I didn't really have any specific goals in mind around, you know, increasing specific leadership skills or team building skills or anything like that. What I really wanted to do was one, you know, provide, you know, a bit of an uncomfortable, strange environment for people that would also be fun. Um, and you know when you expose yourself to discomfort and overcome it, um, it makes you a stronger person i believe in in many senses and um, you know really, just to have fun and pick up some new skills and um, and you know <laughs> most people in the office don 't get a whole lot of physical exertion, even though we give everybody free gym memberships. most people have their asses and seats all day just snacking and getting fatter and fatter. Um, it's it's great to be outside and, and do some new stuff. But you know, doing your class and kind of and seeing some of the stuff, I think there's more that can be doubled down on. Um, kind of the, the biggest eye-opening experience for me um, or kind of the the revelation I had is the difference between kind of your world and my world is, you know, things happen in your world very fast. And things happen in our world very slow. You can almost apply kind of the the same kind of overall macro strategies or tactics when it comes to like, let's say, basic battle strategy when you're attacking a problem. But when you're kind of running things in real time, things in your world happen really, really fast. In our world, it happens really slow. Like one of our games could take three years to make. And you don't really, it's really hard to kind of, you have to really step back and figure out what mistakes that you're making um, and be very, very disciplined about making sure you're executing your plan because you can get very complacent and it's, it's very hard to recognize any problems that are happening versus in your world, you know, problems are going to, if there's a problem, you know, someone's going to die or, you know, something's going to happen real fast. And, um, you know, I think kind of going through your class, and if you remember when we were doing, um, you know, that first vehicle interdiction where, um, you know, we took care of the the two mock terrorists and then people were just kind of sitting around for about mm-hmm. 30 seconds. Yeah. before It's like, okay, let's pick up these bodies and throw them in the back of the truck. Um, you know, that was kind of a good analogy for me um, in terms of where I can see kind of what happens to people when they don't have super explicit tasked instructions. You know, what happens to them when, it's, when a scenario is going fast? But Jesus, what would happen... If that were kind of drawn out, not to 30 seconds, but to 300 days. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that case, it's like, okay, you know, some people who don't have kind of the same kind of playbook or the same set of leadership skills need to be tasked with things. And it depends on kind of the order of the scenario or whatever. Uh, But one of the biggest takeaways for me there, if this is making sense, is. You know, things happen slow in our world and, you know, mistakes are going to be amplified. And, you know, with kind of your scenario that we were kind of running through, kind of exposing, I would say, mistakes on a faster level when you're kind of in a team environment. So the takeaway for us there is to you've got to double down and make sure people know what the hell they're doing at all times.
0: Yeah. And that goes along the lines of like, like we talked about is, uh you know, the the management expectations that you have. Are more challenging and and like you say, a deliberate planning process that may take years, and and for us that would be like the, the strategic level, right? The guys on the ground don't always see the end state of what they're accomplishing because it doesn't tie into you know the generals who are looking at the overall strategic picture, and and they're, they they become almost out of touch with what the guys are doing on the ground and vice versa, and I think uh, what what are some strategies that you use? maybe in principle, in in, uh, execution that you use as a leader for your company that have kind of aligned you or kept you in focus and not complacent? Because I could see, you know, for us in special operations, it it happens to the best of us where complacency can be instilled in literally hours, uh, you know, days, and it means the difference between life or death. Well, you're in an industry where obviously there's no lies in danger, but it could be in the difference between – succeeding and failing. Is there anything specific that you, that you do or principles that you, that you adhere to that might, might benefit the listeners? Yeah, absolutely.
3: So, you know, complacency is, is the number one enemy and it really happens at any larger company and we're not too large. I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're about 250 people. We used to be a lot bigger and things used to move a lot slower. Um, so, you know, focus is a big deal for me. You know, I mean, yeah, I can go through kind of a big laundry list of things, but you know, let's start with just you know people selection. Um, you know, people selection is probably eighty five percent of of the game. Um, making sure that you've got very passionate, dependable people who are going to have that natural drive, want to get stuff done, and want to accomplish accomplish big things, and of course, most importantly, are aligned with your vision. So. You know, you can hire people who are really competent, really good, but don't actually really want to do or aren't in love with, you know, your strategy or what the company is about. And that can be very dangerous. You can also have, you know, then there's the case of where you have the really talented asshole. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody listening has probably worked with that, that one guy or maybe more where they're really good, but they're just not pleasant to work with. And people just kind of tolerate them or put them in the corner or whatever. That's not healthy either. I mean, you, you've really got to have a lot of discipline around hiring great people who are not only, you know, technically competent at whatever, you know, job they're doing marketing or engineering or game design art or accounting or whatever, but they've got to be really on board, um, with uh with the vision of the company and um you know they've got to be easy to work with and, and great to work with I mean, you're gonna be spending a lot of time with these people probably more time than your, your significant other or your friends um so you know why not uh spend a whole lot of time about having a very rigorous selection process for people you know not unlike you know what you guys do in uh, special operations i mean there's one hell of a selection process there you're You're gonna be pretty sure that by the end of that multi year period, that that person is gonna be for that job. Now, unfortunately, we can't do a multi year recruiting process, um, but uh, you've gotta be very diligent about it. So, you know, once you have kind of the right people, you've gotta make sure that you've got the right number of people. Um, You know, the, the right number of people for a team is being constantly redefined as business gets more and more efficient. So, again, back to what I was talking about, you know, maybe 20 years ago when things were so complicated just to get, you know, new, you know, internet connections up to your servers and things like that. I mean, hell, now people mostly don't even worry about servers. They, they have it in the, you know, cloud. Um, it's, uh, the same thing with teams. I mean, so many things have been so many things have been so much more made to be so much more efficient, whether it's new software or, um, new tools, you know, new methodologies for working better. You just need fewer and fewer people to do the same thing that you were trying to do 20 years ago. Um, And that continues to accelerate in terms of efficiency. So you have kind of, you know, especially when you're a manager or a leader with a lot of experience, some people can be stuck in, in old patterns and they just keep trying to play the same playbook. And you've got to be really dynamic and thinking about, okay, let's reset all expectations How many people do I really need to do this thing? Um, And there aren't enough people who are out there. And this is, you know, it's not that, it's not that we're, you know, super talented leaders. I think in many cases we're, you know, to be successful, you just have to be the tallest midget. Um, You know, I hear all these things um, that, you know, for all successful companies out there, they're they're all only, you know, 51% functional, 49% dysfunctional. And that's a, that's a, that's a very successful ratio. You know, nobody out there does it great all the time, but you've got to have leaders and you've got to condition them to not judge their career and their personal self worth with how many people they have reporting to them. And when I was a junior manager, I was so excited to tell my parents, yeah, I've got, I've got five people working for me. This is, this is so cool. I'm a, I'm a big hotshot and that just means absolutely nothing. Um, you know, the, the best and most efficient company is, is a team of one, if it's possible. Um, I mean, we accomplished some of our greatest feats when we were nine people crowded around a, a handful of desks. And um, things got really out of control when we scaled up to many hundreds of people. And we had too many people working on different things that didn't mean anything. And, you know, you just have to constantly question, you know what's the most efficient way to do things you got to test yourself and it always almost always your instincts are wrong and that you think you need way more people than you you need especially when you're not managing something that you're a subject matter expert in i mean for example you know we used to have like 150 people working on, you know, our basic shared technical infrastructure. So like all the server operations, all of the analytics systems and things like that. Today, that group has been replaced by a team of 11 people. And those 11 people do it better, faster, cleaner, and cheaper with less downtime than when 150 people were doing it. Oh, wow. right. um, so, you know, a big believer on, you know, hiring kind of the, the mythical 10Xer. So it's, you, you you've got this notion of the person that can do um you know they're going to be more expensive than than kind of their peer who's not as capable but they can possibly do accomplish things that kind of 10x the efficiency rate um because they don't have to deal with a team of other people i mean the most most inefficient thing known to man when it comes to organizations is when you add people to to that organization and you just start to you know, you know, human to human communication is relatively inefficient. I mean, imagine, you know, you know, when you're running, you know, field craft or anything, you're, uh, you've kind of got your master plan in your head about what you want field craft. But when you really have to like scale it out and kind of convince, you know, you're delegating different responsibilities to people, that's where kind of efficiency starts to break down when it was possible. You'd probably like to do everything yourself because you can just do it faster. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same case when it comes to basically anything in business. You've got to keep it as small as possible with as many talented people as possible. Um, so you want people with kind of the weight of the world on their shoulders. You don't want you don't want people to feel like they can really relax because oh, Joe over there has got it covered. I can kind of slack off. Like you need to make sure people are tasked. They've got something really important to do, and um, there's some
0: pressure to deliver, and there's some big reward. So it really kind of comes down to those fundamentals man that's that's huge uh, you know I, I was taking notes while you're while you're saying those things cuz i mean just for me that's important and and i could see that it's it's funny because i could see the comparisons you know i compare business to special operations models all the time and and when you talk about um, you know the people or the industry and and the the most important aspect in special operations prior to anything is identifying the right people through through selection and assessment but also how you task organize those people, because you know the the units in special operations that that have really almost fell apart, um, for lack of better uh, words, is they fell apart because the people they failed to recruit the right people for the right jobs, and so they become this almost this bureaucratic system, and they kind of don't have a real defined mission statement anymore and they kind of just are what they are and and they lose sight of the, of of the focus of the mission. And like you said, they become complacent. And And it's
3: probably, it's probably a lot harder to get rid of people in government than it is in the private sector.
0: Yeah. And, and then, and see, yeah. And I I absolutely see that like in the government, just like with the VA system, you know, you look at the VA system uh, talking about trying to get rid of people, it's almost impossible to get rid of a, a government employee And then uh, for you to build uh, a private model, and that's why I believe wholeheartedly that private business models are the solution to a lot of the problems that the government can't fix because of their ability to adapt and remain, and instead of being rigid, their ability to adapt and remain flexible when it comes time to change, whether that's to technological advances, building efficiency, reestablishing management and task organization, like you said, um, that's the one benefit of your industry is that you're you're able to adapt at the speed in real time, as a as opposed to this real drawn out latency that's developed in government.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would I would go absolutely crazy if I worked in government.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's I want nothing to do with it anymore. <laughs> um, I've dealt with that long enough. Two decades is enough for me. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what's next. What's like, number one what what's next for you and and kickside what, what, what what's the next phase? do you get a, a next phase of, of planning for the, this fiscal year
3: yeah i mean we've been we've been basically in kind of a three year development cycle working on some new stuff you know like I said, we narrowed our focus um, you know when we were really we were really successful and hyper efficient we had fewer people and we were working on fewer things you know we had so much success. A few years ago, that um, we started to scale way too broadly. We're bringing too many people on, starting up too many projects, and kind of lost sight of the fact that hey, you know, each one of these things are really hard to do, and people who can do them don't grow on trees. Um, so we spent, you know, some time kind of internalizing what we want out of this company, and what I want is to create as close to a perfect business as possible. I want to create a business or I'm creating a business that is, you know, boutique in size almost, um, but can deliver billions in revenue um, and not go public, not have to deal with big bureaucracy, but just, just make a really great company with great teams and great people who love coming to work every day or are passionate about what they're working on and get paid a whole hell of a lot of money too. Um, so that's the plan that we're executing on and we've been working on and the plan in terms of kind of, what we do from a from a game and product standpoint is we take a lot longer than what uh, than what most people do when it comes to free to play game development. The majority of free to play game developers out there are all basically performance marketers. They really don't care much about the game. It's really just how how can I extract the maximum amount of dollars per user, and can I afford advertising to do this? And most of those guys are successful if they're really good at it. Unfortunately, a lot of the kind of very passionate game makers in the free-to-play and mobile marketplace. They create games that look really good, play really well, but they haven't really figured out how they're going to make any money, and so those, those things die on the vine pretty fast. So we're trying to merge those two approaches. Um, we want to make something that's really high quality and also makes enough money um, to support development and more development and pay our people well. And that takes a lot of time. So you know, we're about to launch a game called War Commander Rogue Assault, which is kind of the sequel to our first War Commander it's much bigger. It's the creative director is a guy, a very talented guy named Lou Castle. He invented the entire real-time strategy genre. He invented Command and Conquer. If any of you guys played that oh, back awesome. in the day, um, and uh, so we're kind of throwing everything at it. Um, but that's been in development for almost three years now. Finally, about to launch in a couple months. Um, so that's our. So we're focusing on kind of few flagship items, and then one other flagship game that we're launching probably early next year is a massive giant kind of what we call an MMO God game um, set in kind of medieval times, but it isn't just kind of a war strategy game. It's, it's, it's kind of a living embodiment of what it'd be like to be kind of a Lord back in um, back in the middle ages. And you can imagine kind of the politics that play into that and um, war love all sorts of crazy stuff. So we're trying to build something really massive there. So you know, we want to be as ambitious as possible, but kind of narrow the focus onto the things that we know that we can make massively successful. Um, you know, what I found is when we were running a little bit bigger is that it's just not fun to run a really massive, big video game company because there's just too much going on. These things are too hard to do. So I really like making games and, um, you know, I want to be more involved. So we've kind of taken some things back to basics and so far it's proven to be a lot more successful.
0: That's awesome. So we'll... Uh, where can guys and gals find you guys on? Like what, what are your what what's your website?
3: Uh, you can go to kickseye.com k i x e y e. Um if you're interested in war commander rogue assault, you can select that from the menu and enter your email address to get up updates. Um but it should be hitting the app store and, and uh, Google Play Store globally sometime in June. And
0: and the games you have available right now, anybody can go on the app store. Yeah.
3: Yeah, you can play Vega Conflict um, search for it in iTunes or Google Play. You can play that now. And um, other games are linked off of our website
0: Kickside.com. Okay, awesome, man. Hey, Will, it was a pleasure having you on, man. And and the the uh, the big takeaway is for, you know, for people out there I mean, and your industry is kind of like a almost like a protected industry and not a lot of people know, maybe in, in Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco, you know, it, it things are known, but outside of that People just play what they play, and it's it's pretty rare. I don't think in my life I'd ever imagine that'd be podcasting with the CEO of a, a huge gaming company. But um, your perspective, which is aligned with a lot of values and ideals and leadership styles that we apply in special operations, is uh, more the benefit for the listeners. And, and I appreciate having you on today.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I would just like to offer one more thing to to your listeners. You know, if you're coming if you're a veteran and you're kind of struggling to figure out kind of how to integrate yourself with the business world or make money, I'd really encourage you to pursue entrepreneurship. You know, I think, you know, people coming, especially from the special operations community have a lot of the necessary skills from leadership and just, you know, just raw drive and you just don't quit. And that is worth a lot more. You know, you don't have to be, You don't have to be an uber genius to be a successful entrepreneur. In fact, the majority of billionaires that I know are not geniuses by any stretch. They're just super hardworking and they do not stop. Um, So, you know, uh, hopefully you all can be very successful.
0: Awesome advice, Will. I appreciate having you on, man, and hope to have you on. Again, let's plan to have you on right before your your new game drops in a couple months, man. It would be good to... uh, Highlight some of the stuff we talked about and uh, your advice is always welcome. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Will. All right.
1: Talk to you later. Yep. Later. That's a very interesting perspective, uh, having Will Harbin on. And it's, it's interesting just to, so you can hear things, people can say things about business and about leadership and how things should work. But when it comes from someone who's been very successful at what they've done, I think the words have a little more meaning. So it's very it's also interesting the part where he speaks about having the right guys or gals for the team, for the company and basically having quality over quantity. I think that's very interesting and I hope that the listeners can soak up some of that information and and hopefully it will help people in uh whatever adventures that they decide to pursue. So uh with that being said, uh, we're going to close out this episode. Um, my website is globalrecon.net, my Facebook is FB Recon, my Instagram, I have i have a secondary Instagram account, and so does Mike. Uh, my first account is IG Recon, and my second account is globalrecon underscore Inc., and my Twitter account is IG Recon as well. And if you have any questions about anything you've heard on the show, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And uh, with that being said, I'll hand it over to you, Mike.
0: Hey guys, so it's Mike from Philcraft, and uh, you know you guys can catch me out on my uh, Instagram. It's at Soft Survivor, S O F Survivor. I also got at Philcraft Survival. You can catch me on Facebook at Philcraft LLC, also on Twitter uh, at IG Soft Survivor, and then uh, obviously on my website at www.philcraftsurvival.com. I just want to also let you guys know that on April 30th, uh, me and Travis Osborne, Travis is the medic that we had on, recently retired medic that we had on that treated Marcus Luttrell uh, and we had him on the podcast uh, a few, few episodes ago, but, but me and Travis are actually going to be running a course on 30 April in Northern California on a... This is we're going to call it a tactical med course, but it's basically it's something that we've done all the time, which is uh, teaching TCCC C combat casualty care. But this course is going to be a little bit different. So Travis is going to teach you the ins and outs of of, of combat medicine. Uh, you know, being a, a paramedic, a tactician, uh, a certified 18 Delta. He's actually, I think he's actually on terminal leave, which means he's he's still in active duty, but he's on leave. Uh, he'll be he'll be teaching his piece, but then we're going to implement that with some practical exercise and ha- put you guys through some scenarios that you might see uh, here in the real world. You know, not necessarily for the first responder, or for the for the uh, police officer or the soldier, but you know, for the everyday civilian who might run into a situation where it's an active shooter, or they take a casualty, or just an accident. And we anticipate that it's going to be a uh, really popular course. So you can you can go on my store. On training and consulting and under the technical med course. Again, that's April 30th. And uh, reserve your slots. And they are, there are only a a few slots. um, So get on there as soon as possible and uh, reserve your slot. If you got any questions, you can hit me up on my email. It's info at PhilCraftSurvival.com. And of course, me and John are always available on our Global Recon uh, podcast email. And John, what's that Global Recon podcast email?
1: It's podcast at globalrecon.net. Yeah, hit us up anytime.
0: We look forward to uh, hearing the feedback. Always, always, if you have the time to listen, please just take the minute to, to leave a review because that keeps us up in the number one slot and gives us more ears and uh, uh, spreads the wealth of knowledge that we get on here from uh, our, our guest. Uh, thanks for being on and uh, until next time, we'll talk to you later.